everybody. I'm Ashton Demery. And I'm Nicole Demery. And welcome back to our Atheist Bible Study, where we recorded this two days earlier, but the audio was pee-pee-poo-poo, so we <laughs> had to start over again. Yep, here we are. So we're in Leviticus now, and Ashton has been talking about this thing called the documentary hypothesis, basically an explanation for like how the Bible was sort of pieced together. And Leviticus is written really different from the other chapters. It's a little more like a recipe book style. And so he's going to explain why that is. Yeah, so Leviticus is the first full book we're going to have that is entirely in the, from the priestly source. We saw it sporadically throughout Genesis. Uh, we saw it also sporadically in early Exodus. And then we saw it in full force from... Exodus 25 through 31 and 35 through 40. Those are the first full sections that are entirely in the priestly source. And if you remember, those are kind of the sections that read sort of like this early part of Leviticus where uh, they're really heavily just instructions for doing things and that's that certain type of style. Do you want to go quickly over like the other types of sources too and like where the priestly source fits in? Yeah, so... As we mentioned before, some of the other sources we have are the J text, which is the Yahweh text or the Yahwist text. We also have the E text, which is the Elois text. So the distinguishing points between those is the name that they use to refer to God. Those were written in similar time periods, uh, but one is believed to be kind of sourced from the northern part of Israel and the other one from the southern part or the kingdom of Judah. The last type that we haven't talked about it all yet because it hasn't come up is the Deuteronomist. Uh, we'll talk more about that later when we get into Deuteronomy. But these are the sources that we understand to be the sources of the Pentateuch. The priestly text actually makes up the largest portion of the Pentateuch. It's something like 45% of it because it makes up all of Leviticus and then heavy parts of Exodus as well. So going back to some of the other times that we uh, saw the priestly source throughout Genesis and Exodus. Some of the major points that we had were the first telling of the creation story is actually from the priestly text, which feels like kind of a random thing based on the other interests that we see in the priestly text. We also saw the priestly text. Wait, what the, do you mean by that? Like, what are the interests of the priestly text? So the priestly text is really concerned with cultic practices in general. So the priestly text in Leviticus shows up as sort of an instruction guide for the priestly class, which is the the Aaronid priesthood. So this first eight or so chapters of Leviticus is literally just instructions for all the different types of sacrifices. And we also see that the priestly text is centered around this idea of Yahweh dwelling among the people. So because of that, you'll see that the priestly text cares a lot about purity. And we see a lot of instructions around the purity of the people and clean versus unclean and how to distinguish and how to make things clean. Because the concern is that if Yahweh is dwelling among the people, then if the people are not behaving correctly, not keeping themselves clean, then they will contaminate the pure God. Okay. And so you'll see in the other parts that the priestly text shows up, uh, we see it in the two long genealogies that you have, one surrounding Noah, and then one going from Noah to Abraham. Uh, this also shows up in the covenant with Abraham and his offspring, the transfer of that covenant to Isaac, the transfer of that covenant to Jacob, 
And then the final transfer of that covenant to Jacob's grandsons, Joseph's sons. So in other parts, you'll see priestly text really concerns itself with genealogies and also with the ideas of covenants mm-hmm. and the, those. Like the specific practices that you're supposed to be doing. Yeah. And again, it's kind of an elitist text because it's really focused around the priests. Mm-hmm. It's not meant necessarily for the common man. Other interesting things about the priestly text. One, you're going to see Aaron a lot more in the priestly text. It shows up, He shows up very little in the other ones, but you'll see him a lot in the priestly text. And the priestly text sort of redacted parts of Exodus. And if you go back and read all of those plagues, you'll notice that Aaron seems to kind of show up and then be inserted into these stories and sort of becomes the center of some of them. And that's because the priestly text wants to make Aaron central because the Aaronid priesthood is central. Mm. Also, the idea of sacrifice. You see the word sacrifice mentioned 82 times by the priestly text compared to just 20 times by the Eloah's text. There's a lot of words like that that are kind of stylistic choices of the priestly text that they're repeated many, many times, and you see them almost nowhere else. So yeah, overall, the priestly text is sort of a focus around the, the priesthood and kind of centralizes itself on cultic practices purity and cleanliness so yeah let's go ahead and get started all right okay so leviticus opens up with the five main offerings and so the first two are sort of like types of offerings like animal or grain and then the last three are situations that you would give an offering for so the first part is called the burnt offering and it's about all the different animals that you can basically like burn on the altar and how you should be doing that so it's like very instructional for the priests on how they should be conducting these sacrifices. So first off, we have a bull male has to be unblemished. The priest is going to basically drain of it, drain it of its blood and splash the blood on the altar. They're going to flay the bull and cut it up. They're going to wash the entrails with water, and then they're going to burn it on the altar. And it's the same process if you're going to be using a sheep or a goat. It still has to be male and unblemished cutting it up, washing the entrails. Um, The only difference that I saw was that you're slaughtering it on the north side of the altar this time. And then if you're going to use a bird, which you kind of find out later on is if um, it's for poor people, like if they can't afford a bull or a sheep or a goat, then they can use birds. You can use a turtle dove or a pigeon, and you have to kill it by wringing its neck, draining the blood off the side of the altar, throw the crop to the east, and then tear it by its wings without severing it. <laughs> this part is so gory and gritty, and it only it just gets worse from here on out. Like it just it sort of repeats the same steps of like the priest splashing the blood over the altar, and then sometimes he does more things with the blood, like he'll dip his fingers in it and rub it on people, and like it's just very, very bloody. Yeah. Somehow the goat and bull ones aren't as bad for me because they're like cutting them open but the idea of just ripping a bird in half basically is just so much more brutal and and they like take something out of it and like throw it over their shoulder basically which is just like i just picture like witches (laughs) like you, you taking like a specific organ out and then throwing it in a certain direction for some like you know hocus pocus reason yeah and i mean that's definitely a lot of what this is i think Christians really separate themselves from a lot of pagan, what they consider pagan practices. But in the early days of this, that distinction really didn't exist in the way that 
it does now. Yeah. The other thing that I thought was interesting about this part is it puts a turtle dove and a pigeon on, like, the same playing field. Like, you can use a turtle dove or you can use a pigeon, which I think is hilarious because a lot of Christians today are, like, very, like, they find the turtle dove or, like, a dove to be very sacred. Right. And they couldn't imagine eating it or anything like that. And this pigeon is seen as, like, you know, like the rats of the sky. <laughs> yeah. But same bird. In this, yeah, they're the exact same bird. All right, so then we get into the grain offering, which is just instructions for how you're going to offer grain. So basically, you bake a cake for God and then burn it on the altar. And then Aaron and his sons get to keep any of the leftovers. Also, again, we see this theme of um, no leaven being allowed. So if you're going to burn it, you can't include any leaven in it. Nope. Yep. All right, so then we move on to, like, the situations that you would give an offering. So. First, there is the fellowship offering. So this is like kind of like a feel-good offering. Like it's like for positive situations, like for your well-being. And you would offer a male, or you can do a female for this one, ox, sheep, or goat. And again, I felt like this description was much gorier than the other ones. So this one, it like specifically describes removing the liver with the kidneys. And this one has a lot more like dashing of the blood, like it I felt like they were kind of like throwing the blood around a lot yeah. more in this one and a lot more like specific talk about like what you're supposed to be doing with the entrails. Right. It talks about removing like the liver and the kidneys and yeah, placing it in certain places. This felt like I was reading the, the book, like the book from Hocus Pocus. This is like if I were to like flip through the pages of that book. Yeah. I feel like I would find descriptions like this. Definitely. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So next we have the sin offering. So this is sinners. <laughs> yeah. So now you have to make a sacrifice in case you unintentionally sinned and now you've realized that you sinned. Does it only say unintentionally? Because I thought it just said I thought it talked about sinning and like just in general too. It does. I don't I'm assuming that's what it means, but it says specifically like if anyone sins unintentionally okay. first. And then it says like once you realize that you've sinned. I feel like that kind of language means that. People are doing these things and not even realizing it. Like, it's just, like, normal human behavior. And then they're just like, oh, that was a sin. Like, go get a goat. Right. <laughs> like, it's a very, like, a gotcha kind of situation. I mean, that's how a lot of these are. It's like, you know, there's certain regulations that if you miss them, you know, or you you have to go somewhere on the Sabbath for some reason, right? <laughs> yeah, and if you mess it up, then you'll die. If you, if you light a fire <laughs> on the Sabbath. Yeah. You so much as... Add kindling to the fire. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So it goes into sort of like the different like classes of people and like what offering they have to give if they unintentionally sin or sin on purpose or whatever. So if a priest sins, then they have to kill a bull. And it's the same as if the congregation were to sin. So if like kind of like the whole tribe of people as a whole did some kind of sin, I don't know what that like would look like. Like the bull thing. I would mm -hmm. think. Like the bull oh, thing before, I would say. Like the create. Okay, so he's talking about like when they made the gold bull and started worshiping it. That was like a whole congregation's yeah. thing. Yeah. So the priest sinning and everybody sinning is like equal to each other. And so both of those situations require that you sacrifice a bull, which I think is like, you know, like the top tier sacrifice. And then it kind of goes into a description of what that's going to look like. So it's again, the priest is dipping their fingers in blood, wiping it on things. And then it talks about if a ruler sins. So if a ruler sins, then it's a similar 
process, but you're using a male goat instead of a bull. And then if ordinary people sin, so just like a single individual sins, then they sacrifice a female goat. So I think it's interesting that kind of like misogyny is like built into the sacrifices too. (laughs) Like a female goat is like worth less. Uh, It's like a lower tier sacrifice than a male. Gotta slip it in any way you can. (laughs) I mean, I also just started like, this kind of just occurred to me now, but like, like the idea that it's super sacred to cut slit the throat of a bull and then wipe its blood on the altar. Mm-hmm. But when a woman is bleeding from her vagina, it's oh, like... Oh, yeah. That's disgusting. Know, yeah. Get the fuck away from unclean. everybody right now, be, you dirty whore. Yeah, you would think that would be like this crazy like fertility ritual or something that they would do from mm-hmm. it, but they don't. No. In this religion, they hate women. So, uh, And then there's also another option of giving a female sheep if you don't have a female goat. So, yeah. So, there's that. And then it goes into... How you can become unclean, which like later it goes into more detail about how something can be made unclean. Um, but for now, it just briefly kind of mentions that. So touching dead, unclean livestock would make you unclean. Touching a human that is unclean or uttering aloud a rash oath. And then to atone for these things so that way you're no longer unclean but clean. You need a sheep, but if you cannot afford a sheep, then you can bring two turtle doves or pigeons. And then if you can't afford those things, then you can bring flour. I mean, the big thing for me in the sin offering is that it kind of it starts out and it tells you that you can do this if you violate a commandment. Like the first reading I did of it, I thought it was only for like other rules that you break, but it literally says you can do this for violating a commandment. Mm-hmm. So <laughs> why did we have this whole thing where Moses goes through and slaughters half the village? Over the fucking bull. If oh, they yeah. Just Sacrifice. Sl- yeah. <laughs> could have just sacrificed the bull or something. All right. So then we get into the guilt offering. And there isn't really a clear distinction between the guilt offering and the sin offering. Because I assume in both situations you're feeling somewhat guilty for sinning. But. Yeah. Anyway. So. But in this one it's interesting because they kind of bring in this idea that the priests are getting something out of this. So. People are bringing these offerings, but not everything is just going to waste or, you know, going to God or whatever by being burned. Like the priests are also getting a portion of this. So for a guilt offering, you're supposed to bring in a ram without blemish. And then one fifth of the ram in silver will be given to the priest. And then um, it also mentions this idea that kind of contradicts an earlier idea where it says if you steal anything, then you need to return it and give an extra fifth. Right. So this directly qu- contradicts Exodus 21:37. According to Exodus 21:37, if an ox or a sheep is stolen, it has to be paid back fivefold or fourfold respectively. And then it tells you that if that ox or sheep is still alive instead of being sold off or slaughtered, then you only have to pay it back twofold. You just give back the one that you stole and then one more. Mm-hmm. Well, according to Leviticus 6.5, all I have to do in any case is if I stole an ox or a sheep or other livestock, now I have to pay it back plus a fifth of its worth. So just a fifth of its value in gold. Yeah. The, the direct contradiction of the previous book. Yeah. All right. So, and then we get into just additional you know, rules and regulations for the offerings. So it says that the burnt offering has to stay on the altar the whole night until morning. And then, I love this part, it gives this, like, 
cute little instruction set for how a priest should dispose of the offering. Oh, yeah, we get, like, the little shake-and-bake recipes. or <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> so the priest specifically says has to put on his underwear before before putting on his outside clothes. Yeah, so basically God wants him wearing his underwear before he does anything with the ashes that are on the altar. So once he's changed, then the priest can put the ashes beside the altar, not take them outside yet. Then he has to do a, another outfit change into a different outfit for taking the ashes outside. So now that he's changed, he can take the ashes outside. It also explains how the fire on the altar needs to be kept going forever, which seems like a very big task and probably went out a couple times and says that the grain offering should also be burned but some of it should be used for cake that Aaron and his sons get to eat so again we see like there's a little something in it for the priests when people bring in these offerings um but if a priest so if a priest is the one making the grain offering then all of it gets burned and no one else gets to eat it. So if someone from like the church is making an offering, there's something in it for the priest. But if the priests are making an offering, then pretty much no one gets to have any of it. Of course not. No. So uh, if there is a well-being offer, though, then, uh, then the congregation gets to have some. So, Oh, and then it goes into, so it's a, it calls it Thanksgiving, but it's not, you know, our version of Thanksgiving. It's not the holiday. It's just you're giving thanks for something. Yeah. So if it is for Thanksgiving, then you can save some for the next day, but definitely not the third day. If you eat any of those leftovers the third day, then you are guilty. And this also makes you unclean. I love the theater of all this. Of like, the, <laughs> like the, all the outfit changes and stuff like that. Yeah. When I picture whoever the priest is running this show, mm-hmm. they're like, they're like the manager of a like modeling firm or something like that. Like like they're running the catwalk and like <laughs> instructing go, go, all these go. women. Go, go. <laughs> now, it's you. Get out of that. Now. <laughs> and they're just so stressed the whole time because nobody's doing it Yahweh's way. <laughs> okay. And then it also says that if you eat the fat of an ox, sheep, or goat, then you will be cut off from everybody else. Yeah. It talks about that in the well-being offerings too you can't eat any fat or blood which is not really possible if you're eating meat but Mm -hmm. you're not allowed to eat the fatty parts of that animal if it's an animal that could be used as a sacrifice to which okay i would just like to point out that the pieces of the meat that the priests get are like some of the fattiest parts like they get to eat the thigh they get to eat the right thigh and thighs are delicious yeah and very fatty yeah, I, I don't know if maybe they only understood fat to actually be, like, the really obvious fat that surrounds organs and stuff mm-hmm. like that. It, that. That must be what it is, that they just did not really distinguish. Yeah. All right, so now we move on into the installation and ministry of Aaron and his son. So this is basically, like, the little ceremony that they did to ordain Aaron and his sons as priests. So Moses gathers everyone to the tent so they can all watch him play dress-up with the priests. They put on a chess piece on Aaron, a dress, and a turban. Oh, sorry, and a turban. They kill a few animals together. And then they basically make the whole congregation watch as Aaron and his sons get to eat some of the cakes and animal parts that they all sacrificed. And then everything else gets burned. Yeah, it's a little ceremony for it. Then it kind of goes into this short story of the priests and elders. They sacrifice some more animals together. 
Again, it's a lot of description of them tearing the animals apart, throwing their blood everywhere. And then in the end, everybody sees God in the fire on the altar. Yeah. So in these sections, uh, we have another one of our, our contradictions here. It tells you in Leviticus seven thirty-seven through 38, it says, This is the ritual of the sacrifice of the offering, the grain offering, the sin offering, the offering of ordination, and the sacrifice of well-being, which the Lord commanded Moses on Mount Sinai. Emphasis on Mount Sinai. If you look back to this very same section at the beginning of Leviticus, the same origin, same source, Leviticus 1 says, The Lord summoned Moses and spoke to him from the tent of meeting. And then it starts the whole thing, right? This is all supposed to be kind of one long monologue of all the things that Yahweh is requiring. And it first tells you that it's from the tent of meeting, and then at the end, forgets that it told you that and tells you that this is all happening at the top of Mount Sinai. Mm -hmm. You also have uh, an even bigger contradiction, which we've been seeing consistently for a while now, but we didn't talk about yet. And that's whether or not the Israelites have meat to eat at all. Mm -hmm. Clearly in Leviticus 1 through 8, they must have meat because they're doing all these sacrifices. And it's not just that God's giving this instruction in the wilderness and expecting them to not do it until they get to the land of Canaan, because in the very last section, we see that they actually do all these things. Right. They start doing the sacrifices and ordinating the priests. Mm -hmm. So let's look back to Exodus 16. It starts with the Israelites complaining about how they have nothing to eat. And it says that this is on the 15th day of the second month after departing from Egypt, which seems to be saying exactly one month because apparently they left Egypt around the 14th or so day of the month of Nisan, which is the first month of the Hebrew calendar. Okay. So it's been about a month, and all of a sudden they're saying they have nothing to eat. Well, you look back to Exodus 12, it tells us that they left Egypt with livestock in great numbers, both flocks and herds. So in one month, all of a sudden those livestock are gone. Mm-hmm. So some of the, the Christian gymnastics around this particular confusion is they'll say, oh, well, the Israelites were in Egypt for a long time and they picked up all the Egyptians' crazy cult practices, which is funny considering the chapters we just read. Yeah. But the idea is that Egyptians have sacred animals and so all of a sudden the, the Israelites got this crazy idea that certain animals were sacred and they couldn't eat them. Okay, so they had livestock with them, but they were felt like they couldn't eat them. Yeah. Which, two things on that one. One, you don't keep livestock if you're not going to eat it. You would just stop keeping that livestock if you thought it was sacred. Yeah. Uh, and two, the Egyptians did, in fact, eat cattle and goats. They raised them for slaughter. They right. had other sacred animals, but those were not any of them. Right. And then also, one of the claims is, oh, well, they were saving them to sell in Canaan. 40 years later. Yeah. and, and <laughs> Nobody's going to starve <laughs> on account of waiting to sell their meat 40 years later. Yeah. And like the whole kind of story that I feel like I've been sold is that they're going to a promised land that God is just going to give them. Like they're not, even if there are people there, which like I was kind of under the impression that this is like just some untouched land that God has reserved for them. But say there are people there, he's going to wipe them clean. Yeah, they're not going to have to trade with nobody. They're not going to have to, you know, sort of make their way in as, like, the new guys. Like, they're just going to kill those people that are already there. 
Yeah, and usually even if you were going to sell your goods, you would eat some of them, right? Like yeah. you either are growing like grain and then you sell the grain and purchase meat, but also but then have both or you're selling meat and you purchase some grain so you have both. Yeah. Anyways, all of this is pretty much moot because at the very end of Exodus 16, it says the Israelites ate manna for 40 years until they came to the habitable land. Right. And after that whole manna and quail story, it tells you very specifically that that's all they had for mm-hmm. 40 years. And then immediately after that story in uh, Exodus 17, the Israelites start complaining now that they have no water and that their livestock are going to die of thirst. Right. And then it tells you that in Exodus 18, Moses is eating bread with Jethro. Again, contradicting the manna story. He's not talking about manna. He's talking about actual bread. Mm-hmm. And then Exodus 24, the people bring forth sacrifices as offerings of well-being. So we know they did sacrifice some of these animals and eat some of them. Right. And it's at most a couple of months after the manna and quail story based on the chronology that the priests insert in Exodus 19. Mm -hmm. And now we get to Leviticus 1 through 7, where they're sacrificing a whole bunch of animals and at the end of it, eating some of it. Yeah. So there's no way you can find a way to make those things all work together. You just cannot. Yeah. So all this to say, all that inconsistency kind of maybe makes you think maybe just a little bit in the back of your head, like, oh, maybe this didn't really happen. Yeah. Maybe none of this is true. Man, I started this podcast (laughs) not expecting to come to this conclusion. (laughs) It's going to be difficult for me to stomach. (laughs) All right. So moving on, we move into this very, like, sad part, but it... uh, are we going into Nadab and Abihu? Yeah. So basically the story goes is two of Aaron's sons, they walk up to the altar and they fucked up something in their soup. So they were consumed by a fire and died. They make some kind of offering. Yep. Fire goes up crazy, lights them on fire and they die. This is very shocking to everybody except Moses. <laughs> so Moses tells Aaron in so many words that God meant for this to happen, that it's fine. The, so the two boys are carried out to the front of the tent. Moses says that if any of the priests mess up their hair or, hair or outfits, then God will kill them. So he's telling them, like, you know, not to look sad, not to mourn yeah. over them, basically. And they can't go outside while everyone else is mourning the boys or they will die. So, like, Moses is, like, very um, strict on appearances. He doesn't want yeah. any of the priests to show, like, that this is a mistake and that this wasn't supposed to happen. That This is kind of all part of God's plan. And, like, you know, the people can mourn the death the deaths of them but the priests have to remain stoic and act like you know this is all according to god's will something that that isn't very clear to me is like why this happened so when i'm reading this i'm like i said i it it just seems like they messed something up in their offering and that's what caused them to die but in reality it kind of seems like something else is going on yeah like what the fuck did nadab and abihu do wrong right is Hard to tell just, like, reading this without any other context. Yeah. Uh, but the, the central purpose of the narrative is about it's about arrogance and knowing your place. I hate that. I hate it when people tell you to know your place. Yeah. So basically what happens is 
Aaron himself is supposed to be the one to present all the offerings. He's like the lead priest, and he's supposed to present all the offerings to God. Nadab and Abihu were arrogant enough to think that it would be acceptable for them to do it in his place. So they walk up with their incense and their, I I believe they did the burnt offering as well. Mm -hmm. And they bring that up and do it in Aaron's place. Also, they bring their own fire instead of, it's hard to really tell if the, the idea is that God just creates, spontaneously creates fire to burn these offerings, or if there's just a fire that is constantly lit at the at the tabernacle that they're supposed to use. Yeah, well, we know that there is supposed to be a constant flame right. going on the altar from earlier, but yeah. So in either case, they brought their own fire, which is considered unclean, and they put that in there, right? So again, it's their arrogance to think that their fire is good enough for God. Mm-hmm. And so this is what ultimately kind of sets this whole thing off. Uh, but there's also some midrash interpretations of this because I guess we're not the only ones who thought this was a little strange. A lot of people thought, you know, that's really not severe enough for a punishment of God. So maybe there's other things that are going on in the background. And mm-hmm. so uh, the ideas that some of these uh, rabbis inserted. My favorite one is by the Holy Or Hachim. Uh, and explains that their passionate love for God just became so intense that their bodies could no longer contain their souls. And that's reinforced by the line in this passage that says they drew near to the Lord. So the idea is they, they just walk up there and they're just so like... On fire for the Lord. Yes. <laughs> just on fire for God. And they actually just incinerate. But the funniest part of this is it's not like they're like, oh, yeah, this wasn't actually a sin. This wasn't bad. They just were so in love with God that they got to go be with God. Mm-hmm. It actually was a sin. It's a sin to be so in love with God that you're disconnected from the world. <laughs> Apparently. Another one is they say that, oh, they were, they were celibate, and that was a sin. It's apparently a sin to be celibate, at least as a man. Yeah. Um, I was going to say, I was like, that doesn't seem right for... <laughs> yeah, so staying single for no good reason at all is considered a sin. Uh, and then lastly, some added in like, oh, well, they were they were drunk on the job, right? They were drinking mm. before they came, and, and that was part of it, too. So the alcohol inside their system caught fire. Yeah. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Um, but that also, the passage ends up talking shortly after this about not drinking. So mm. that is kind of like, Probably where they got that from. Yeah. Either way, it's very sad and shocking situation for, like, the whole tribe. Um, yeah. So while everybody is outside sort of mourning these two boys, uh, Moses is still inside trying to do some damage control. What I assume is, like, a very shocked group of priests. So he tells them, like, go ahead, eat the rest of the cake offerings. Um, also, this time you can share the thigh and breast meat with your daughters. Um, he's just like very he's I feel like he's just being kind of like extra nice like he's just like you know everyone like calm down have some cake yeah you know even your daughters can have some this time too um and then things kind of take a turn when Moses uh realizes that there's a no more goat offering he he like asks about it and they tell him like oh that's already been burned and he gets upset because he wanted them to eat that too and so Apparently, Moses thinks that all of the offerings need to be eaten. So he asks Aaron, you know, like, what, what's going on? Like, why did this happen? This is unacceptable. And Aaron says, 
in so many words. <laughs> Sorry, this part is like kind of confusing. So I tried to like write it out to make as much sense as I could. So Aaron says it's because the sin and the guilt offering came at the same time that day. And then he says, and look at the bad thing that happened, referring to the two, the two kids dying. And then he says, would the Lord even have liked it if I had ate the sin offering today? Yeah. So this he's part... trying to say, claim something about how the guilt and the sin offering came at the same time today. They were like rushed or something or. So the, the stuff I read about this, basically he says something about, he talks about, you know, look at everything that's happened. Would the Lord have even been pleased if I had eaten it? Mm-hmm. And then Moses is satisfied by this, and then that's the end of it. So the ideas that I've seen about this are, it breaks down to either Moses is satisfied because he basically sees that Aaron just like kind of trying to to operate by the word of the, the law. Mm-hmm. And so he's saying, okay, well, I could eat it if, I choose to. It doesn't seem like it's clear that I have to eat it. And it's been, we already fucked some things up before. So let's just do only the offering to God and not worry about eating any of it ourselves. And so Moses understands, oh, Aaron is operating out of fear and obedience. And that's what I want. I like fear and obedience. Mm. So you're good to go. <laughs> uh, the other alternative is okay, Aaron's saying, I just lost my sons today. And I didn't really feel like eating. Yeah. We don't really feel like it's the occasion to be eating the offering. So we just sacrificed the offering and called it. And Moses you know, maybe feels bad and it's like, okay, well, you did all the other things, right? We're, we're pretty much doing everything right. Mm. So end of story time. Now we get into some more rules. So this is where we really go deep into the purity stuff. Yes. Yeah, so next we have the distinction between clean and unclean. So first off, there's clean and unclean foods. So it says you are allowed to eat anything with divided hooves and is cleft footed and who's the cud. And for all intents and purposes, having divided hooves and being cleft footed is the same exact thing. It so is. we are just looking for it has to have divided hooves and chew the cud. Things yeah. like goats, sheep, bull. Yeah. Basically, it has like two little toes. Yeah. With, uh, yeah. And then it kind of goes in this cute little like quiz. Like, oh, maybe you think you can eat this, but actually you can't because I'm missing <laughs> this thing. So it says, this means that you can't eat camel, rock badger, or rabbit because although they chew the cud, they do not have divided hooves. And then it says, no pigs because they do not chew the cud even though they do have a divided hoof. And then it says that you can also have any fish uh, but none that swarm and so you have to have like fins and scales. Yes, basically. exactly. So no, any like fish eel. that have fins or scales but yeah, nothing that swarms. And then it goes into specific kinds of birds that you can eat. So it says you can't eat eagles, vultures, osprey, buzzard, kite, raven, ostrich, nighthawk, seagull, any kind of hawk. Owls, water hen, stork, heron, or bat. Those are the birds you can't eat. I love that they included bat and birds. <laughs> yeah. The word here in Hebrew is, uh, it basically translates to anything that flies. Yeah. They don't really know the difference, I don't think, between like birds and other things that are flying. Yeah, that's fine. I don't blame them. 
All right, and then it talks about how you can't eat winged insects that walk on four legs as long as they have jointed legs for jumping. So locust, grasshopper, and cricket are good to go. Um, Additionally, you can't eat any animals with paws that walk on all fours, no weasel, mouse, or lizard, and no dead thing. Yep. Uh, One of the big uh, Christian debunkings that they like to do is... Apparently, a lot of atheists, which I haven't seen this talked about a lot, but a lot of atheists really focus in on this one because it talks about four-legged insects. Obviously, insects have six legs, and so Christians will you know, debunk, and they say, clearly, atheists are just you know looking for anything, and, and they don't want to know the truth of God. Mm-hmm. Um, which is true. They're right about that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, so here, when it talks about four-legged insects, uh, one, they don't really know what an insect is is mm-hmm. first off the word here is actually the same as the word for bird again right flying insect flying bird it's the same thing as far as they're concerned mm-hmm. so they could be talking about all kinds of things that are you know crawly and have wings or whatever but they say something about uh if it has four legs and additional you know jumping jointed legs right mm-hmm. so that's like talking about you know a grasshopper has Six total legs, but two of them are those, like, legs that they use for jumping. So they don't count those when they're counting legs or whatever. Okay. Right? So, I mean, I'll buy it. Like, that that all sounds fine to me. I don't really... There's not a whole lot in this whole section that I really need to debunk as a, as a atheist because it's people, you know, thousands of years ago trying yeah. to sort out all these taxonomies that they haven't actually established. Right. Yet. That's fine. But one thing I really like... <laughs> The King James Version, again, because the Hebrew is not clear here, doesn't have a different word for these different things. The Hebrew Version, or the, excuse me, the King James Version really confuses this. So they talk about all the birds, and then they start the section about insects by saying, uh, you can't eat any fowl or birds that walk on all fours. And then it says, and yet the flying insects that have four legs and jumping legs are okay. So I don't know how they ended up with that translation. It's a really obviously wrong translation. Mm-hmm. But the Christians that need to defend the King James Version have to come out with a reason for why they're talking about birds that crawl on all fours. And they've already talked about bats, so they can't eat bats. Mm. So their explanation is these are pterosaurs. What, like fucking dinosaurs? Yeah, pterodactyls, basically. Oh my God, shut the fuck up. <laughs> so that's the explanation. It's like, why can't you just say, hey... It's hard to translate stuff sometimes. Yeah, <laughs> Instead, I know. They're like, nope, it's perfect. It's perfect. They're pterosaurs. That's so dumb. And this is why evolution is wrong. Uh, okay. Uh, oh, wait, can you also, okay. I just think this is like a fun biology fact. Can you talk about the difference between a grasshopper and a locust? Oh, so a grasshopper, uh, a locust is actually the same species as grasshopper right there i mean there are multiple species of grasshopper but a grasshopper can form into a locust under certain conditions it's very similar to when bees uh swarm and they create like new hives and whatnot Mm -hmm. under certain conditions the grasshopper will undergo phenotypic changes and then become locusts and they get like these stripes and they're bigger and they're just really aggressive uh in consuming stuff so they will swarm together and just destroy crops and it's pretty devastating and it still happens in uh i mean 
eastern parts of the world, right, in the Middle East still uh, and things like that. Mm -hmm. But even though we have grasshoppers in the United States that are capable of doing this, we haven't had one do this in North America for over 100 years. Kind of interesting. Yeah, maybe there is a god. Yeah, maybe he's, he's protecting, in America. Yeah, he's an American. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I love that fact. It makes me want to watch Bugs Life. Yeah. All right, so next we get into purification after childbirth. So if a woman has a boy, they are unclean for a week, which means that they are separated from their husband and friends with just the baby. Because even though the baby is a newborn, innocent, pure, they are unclean by, like, association with the mother. So they are isolated for a week, and then at the end of that time, the boy needs to be circumcised. And additionally, the woman, the woman is not allowed anywhere wholly for 33 days while she goes through purification. Fine. You know, whatever. I'm sure that after having a kid, nobody really wants to be going anywhere anyways and probably just wants bonding time with the kid. Here's where I have issues with this. So if they have a girl, then everything is doubled. The woman is now considered unclean for two weeks, and she's not allowed anywhere holy for 66 days. I don't understand how my parents were able, or how anybody is able to raise any woman in the Christian faith and, you know, sell them that they, you know, deserve equality and are equal. They just, need, you know, need to perform certain gender roles. Like, how they are selling the story that, like, you are just as good as a boy. When the Bible is, like, clearly sending, like, so many signals, so many, you know, things built into, like, rituals and whatnot that you are, like, you are not. You are not on yeah, the same. Yeah, constantly. You, you're, I mean, you're at least very different. Not even very Not different. even very, yeah, you know, you're right. It's just, like, you are straight up just unequal. Yeah. You, very much less than your, like, you have now made your mother unclean for twice the amount of time. Yeah. Yeah, the just by being born. The only explanation I've seen for this is they'll say, "Well, after a week, the boy gets circumcised, and that makes him clean." So, for the mother, she has to have seven days for her cleanliness, and then another seven days for her daughter's cleanliness because mm -hmm. they're both unclean, and the daughter can't get circumcised. But that doesn't make sense because they're both unclean. They'd both be unclean for seven days. It'd be they'd both get clean in parallel with one another. Right. But that doesn't make any sense either. Yeah. And it's just, they tried to sell you this story. I've seen both Christians and Jewish commentators, at least Orthodox ones, uh, try to sell you this story that this is not degrading. And, oh, actually, it's really respectful to women because it's meant to emphasize the special holiness that a woman has in being able to create life and that holiness means that when she ha gives birth somehow she's extra unholy mm -hmm. it, it just doesn't track at all and especially when this uncleanness means that nobody can touch her nobody can come yeah. near her and if they if they touch anything she touches they touch her bed they will be unclean and if they go into a the tabernacle after doing this, they will die, right? It's that threat of death coming near this woman. Right. In what world is that not degrading? Well, and it just seems especially cruel in a world where, all right, if you if today you're going to say, like, Nicole, I'm not going to go near you for, like, a whole two months. It's like, 
all right, stupid, but I have my phone, you know, I have my computer, I can play on my Switch, like, I have, like, other distractions. They're living in a time where there is nothing else than their, you know, whole religious order. So, like, going yeah. to church is, like, a social event. So, like, being, cu- you're just being cut off from connecting with other people. Right. And the, some of the other ones, you know, one of the claims of, oh, this is actually beneficial because a lot of times after uh, giving birth, women want to be isolated a little bit, right? It's, they don't want to have to go into public gatherings. They want to spend time with their baby. Sure. Make it optional. Like that, yeah. that Somehow optional things aren't a thing that they could even think of. Mm-hmm. Right? The fact of the matter is this whole thing, it's not about respect. It's a simple issue of squeamishness and superstitiousness, mm-hmm. right? It's squeamishness and superstition and nothing more. Yeah. The thing that I saw said that um, <laughs> this is supposed to represent that we are born from sin and, you know, sin is what separated us from God. Yeah. And so being born is a representation of like that whole thing of us getting kicked out of Eden. Which I think, again, emphasizes even more that the fact that a woman is giving twice that time, it's like, oh, well, you're just doubly guilty because, you know, you're right. the whole reason why this. Yep. Yeah. Um, and then also afterwards, um, after any birth, they have to give a burnt offering to the priest. Yep. All right. So next we go into regulations for skin diseases, um, mostly centering around leprosy, but also kind of throws in some other skin, skin diseases that... Uh, we don't really know what they're referring to. Yeah, they, they kind of use leprosy as a general phrase for anything anything bad on your skin or body. Yeah. So, um, essentially, the priests are also serving as doctors in the society. So, anytime somebody thinks that they are developing leprosy or some kind of skin disease, or any kind of skin disease, then they need to show Aaron um, or any of his sons. So, Aaron is going to look at the skin, and if the hair is white, then the person will be announced unclean. And they will be cut off from everybody because they don't want to spread the leprosy. If it doesn't look that bad, so it doesn't seem like it goes, if it seems like it's just kind of surface level, then they will be confined for a week and then Aaron will check up on it again. And then it kind of goes into, so earlier it said the hair is white then they're unclean. However, if they are white all over their body, then they are going to be able, then they are declared clean. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and then next, it just sort of talks about how priests will also examine boils, burns, and itchy beards. Yep. And, I mean, there, there's some common sense here being used, at least, because they talk about, you know, if it's spreading, then obviously it's getting worse. And then, mm-hmm. in general, right, if you have one of these, you should separate yourself at least for a time to prevent spreading. Yeah. Uh, I mean, they make it all superstitious, but that's basically what's happening. Yeah. All right. And then we have a similar process for mildew. So. Priests are going to take a look at weird spots in clothing or houses and basically determine whether or not they need to be burned. Yeah. All right. So here's where we get into, like, the really weird stuff that isn't scientific. Like, it doesn't make sense why they are choosing to do this to clean them. Right. So to cleanse from a skin disease. This is so horrific. They really fucked up. You, yeah. You <laughs> need to. So, so you're going to need to gather two birds some yard, and some wood. You're going to kill one bird, and then you're going to dip the living bird and the yard and some wood into that bird's blood. And then you're going to sprinkle those three objects, you know, seven times 
on the leprous person. And shake the little bird around. Yeah, so just put that in perspective. You know, you're a person <laughs> with a skin disease, and somebody is standing over you with a live bird covered in another bird's blood and some yarn and some wood, and they're just shaking that <laughs> over you. Um, and now you're declared clean, and you get to shave your head, um, change your clothes, uh, and bake. And you're good to go. But you need to live outside of your tent for seven days. Yeah. And then on the eighth day, you need to make an offering. All right. So then we get into discharges that that cause uncleanness. So for if a man has some discharge, not to be confused with semen, just like any kind of discharge coming from his penis, then everything that penis touches is unclean. Everything the man touches too, right? Yeah, essentially. Yeah. Yeah. It just makes a lot of references to things that he would, like, sit on, like his bed right. and things like that. Okay, so, and then once the discharge is gone, then seven days after that, he will be clean. And then on the eighth day, he should give an offering. Now, if a man discharges semen, then he and the woman he had sex with are unclean until the evening, and they need to bathe. But this one isn't really a big deal. Like, they don't make a thing where you need to make an offering. You, you just need to wash up, and you're only unclean right. for until the end of the day. Yep. So. Not a huge deal. But if a woman is on her period, then her and everything she touches is unclean. Yeah, and not just for till the evening or whatever else. It's seven days after your period ends. Yeah. So during your whole period and then seven days after your period, you're unclean. Nobody's allowed to touch you. No one's allowed to have sex with you. Which is just like, come on. <laughs> and then now you have to atone with an offering again. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, like, if you if a man comes, he doesn't have to give no damn offering. But if a woman is on her period, something that she cannot control, she has to give an offering at the end of that time. I just wanted to insert my opinions about having sex on um, someone's period. Because I know a lot of people who, you know, don't believe in God, people who are secular who also kind of follow this, they just prefer not to have sex when somebody's on their period, which is like, okay, it's a personal Thing. I'm not going to say that you have to have sex with somebody on their period. But I am just going to say that I do judge you for it. If you're the kind of man, <laughs> especially if you're a man. Yeah. If you're the kind of man who is like, ill, I'm not going to go anywhere near that when, you know, you're bleeding. I just, I think less of you. Because, you know what? Your dick is gross. Your balls are gross. Semen is sticky and weird. And, you know, that's kind of gross. And... None of that is really a problem. Like, what is a little blood? Right. Yeah, and, and what Nicole's referencing here is it, so it talks about obviously you can't, you can't touch her, touch the bed of the woman on her period or whatever, mm-hmm. but it also says if you have sex with her, you're unclean for seven days as well. You're, right. You're much more unclean for having sex with her. And it's, it's just, it's superstitious, it's degrading, and it's archaic. I also <laughs> just wanted to mention that on TikTok, on Witch Talk, I was educated that if you have sex with somebody on your period, it's a form of blood magic. Mm. If you set an intention for that person to like fall in love with you or something and they have sex with you on your period, then that will happen. They will become obsessed with you. Well, speaking of blood magic, mm-hmm. uh, I have some BibleAss.com's take on uh, the treatment of women on their periods and why Leviticus is just so... Wonderfully respectful to women. Yeah. So it says that this ordination was given for sanitary, health, and physical rest purposes. And 
the whole purpose is actually to protect women from heathen superstitions. Because heathens had these beliefs that the period had magical powers. It does, obviously. If Yeah. <laughs> Uh, that the period, if lightning strikes it, it'll stop wind and storms. People can be struck dead for by touching period blood. All these just kind of magical things. Some of them Wait, good, some of them bad. and they didn't want women to believe these things? They didn't want women to believe okay, these okay. things, right? There's all these magical powers that could be good or bad. And so in order to protect them, they had to create rules. They need You need direct, specific rules that will prevent people from taking up all these superstitions. Mm-hmm. So the basic summary of that argument is, in order to protect a woman from heathen superstitions about menstruation, we need to create our own superstitions in which a woman must be avoided at risk of death if she's on her period, right? Why couldn't you just make it a clear rule? Hey, uh, a woman on her period has the choice of if she wants to have sex with someone or not, and period blood shall not be understood to be mystical or magical or dangerous yeah. in any way. Like, you know what I mean? You, Name something, but you can make a concise discussion of it in your book without adding superstition. It doesn't make any sense. Yeah. Uh, another claim that some Christians will make is, uh, because they like to, to make everything about abortion, mm-hmm. uh, it's about the fact that she just lost a potential life. Oh my God, shut the f- you, you just <laughs> aborted a baby not by not having sex. <laughs> yeah. And then, then every time a man comes... <laughs> Yeah, that's the other thing. Like, yeah. There should be uh, seven days for the man coming, too, right? Like, he just wasted a life. Yeah. So I, I don't think all Christians modern day practice this. And then I know Reform Jews definitely don't, mm-hmm. while conservative Jews still definitely abide by at least the by the part about not having sex with a woman who's menstruating. Almost no one still practices the not coming near or touching the bed or anything like that. Mm -hmm. But I found another thread at BibleChristian.org talking about whether or not you should have sex with a woman on her period if you're a Christian. And basically they said that you still shouldn't have sex with a woman on her period uh, because Leviticus still does apply. I can't figure out when the Old Testament applies and when it doesn't for Christians. It's very confusing. Yeah. But one of the reasons he states is that some women might be less interested in sex when they're on their period. Okay, so don't have sex with her if she doesn't want to have sex. Yeah, it should be the rule. It's like a massive tell. Yeah. You don't recognize the fact that a woman can just say, I don't want to have sex, and that that means anything. Right. right? Like, it's like, oh, well, we just need to not have sex with them on their period because that's probably when they don't want to have sex. <laughs> and the rest of the time, which is guesswork, like yeah, they probably or I wanna... just don't care. I yeah, guess, right. Ew. Oh, I hate that. Yeah, I hate that. Oh, one other th- thing that I feel like is like kind of going on in the in the background of this is like, although we learned in sex ed that it is still possible for you to get pregnant on your period, it is less likely. Like if you're kind of if you're using the calendar method. Meaning that you, you know, you, you're not on birth control, you're not using condoms, you're just kind of having sex when you think you're least likely to get pregnant. You're working around the time, yeah. you know, of your period. And when I was a Catholic, I'm, okay, I'm starting to realize that, like, I thought that I had an extreme, 
like faith growing up just by being Catholic. And I and I kind of realize now that what is what church am I thinking of? That's like way more than me. Evangelicals. Oh, uh, yeah. I'm starting to realize like like evangelicals had it far far worse. Like with the whole you know camps that they would go to. Yeah. Basically, I didn't really have a lot of that, but I did have. I did have a woman kind of show up on one day when I was in uh, catechism or CCD or whatever the fuck we called it. Um, and she basically explained to us this this calendar method that her and her husband were using because, you know, she did not use birth control. Um, they never like explicitly told us that as Catholics, you should not be using birth control. But that was very like kind of like in the undercurrent. Right, coded in. Yeah. Of her talk was that, that that wasn't really something that we were supposed to be doing. So they were using the calendar method and she was talking about how wonderful it was that her and her husband didn't focus on sex all the time, that they did other activities. Like she mentioned they would go to the park and like fly a kite and they never would have thought to do that if they like, you know, weren't, you know, specifically trying not to have sex. They needed to right. come up with activities to, in place of not having sex. Yeah. And yeah, I just think that if you're following that and then on top of that, you're also told that you're not allowed to have sex with on your period. That is just, like, narrowing, you know? Yeah, your window is pretty small. Yeah, you're basically... Which is the point, right? Yeah, you're they basically... they want you to have babies. Exactly, yeah. You're only supposed to have sex if it's supposed to... If you want to have a kid. Yeah, and that, I mean, that is basically the morale behind it in the Catholic Church. Yeah. Although it's been forgotten and just made to be kind of a rule. And so now you can do these, like, weird things to work around it, even though that's not the intent. Yeah. Anyways, I guess that's where we can close it out for this week. Uh, we'll probably finish up Leviticus next week. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's going to be probably worse. Yep. In those chapters. I'll uh, we'll see you next time. Bye.